Hi, Eric. Hi, Aaron. How's it going? It's going really well. Um, I'm going to be tired by the end of the week, but as of right now on a Monday, I'm feeling good. Excellent. I just wanted to tell you up front that I am raising good children. Oh, that's nice to hear. We're going to talk about barfing to start with. Oh, all right. And one of my kids wasn't feeling well today. And so they put on a movie and the movie they put on was Tron. Oh, which one? The original. The original. And this is why I'm telling you I'm raising them right. Because I didn't choose it. They're just like, you know what? I've never seen <laughs> Tron. <laughs> you know what? Can there be better kids than that? I've never seen Tron. Wow. Eric, what are you doing? I don't know. There's like my my experience with movies in the 80s is like not exactly what it was supposed to be. I This is really not on topic, but can I tell you a story real fast? Oh, yeah. So my family was coming back uh, from Logan, Utah, which was the nearest big city to where we lived. We would have to cross state lines and go to Logan to see the doctor, to go to Kmart, you know, important, vital, metropolitan sort of things. We went to Logan. And uh, we came back one night. And as I was wont to do, I looked at the marquee in our little town's theater and E.T. was playing. And I said, I want to go see E.T. And to my shock, for the first time ever, my parents said, "Okay, dad will take you. And I found that so it was so out of place. It just didn't belong that they would say, "Okay, yes, we'll take you to the movies that I got really, really nervous and backed out. And I didn't see E.T. for probably 10 years. Oh, wow. You and I had very different upbringings when it came to media, didn't we? I think so. Yeah. That's probably a safe guess. Yeah, I was raised on Star Wars. I used to tell people... Star when... Wars I did have. That was like the one okay. thing that um, that made it through. I told people when I got married that we were going to raise our family on a solid foundation of the gospel in Star Wars. <laughs> Which I think that we've um, stuck to it. Again, my, my kid was sick. And so they started going backwards in time through their video game collection. They settled on Lego Star Wars, which is one of the best video games ever. And they used to play it when they were like three and five together. Mm-hmm. And so they just got it back out. They're teenagers now. And they just got it back out. And they loved it. David O. McKay was barfing. Yes, that is such an amazing segue. Thank you. I'm pretty happy about it. I'm so ashamed I didn't see that coming. <laughs> as last evening's dinner followed my Jonathan, referring to as Jonathan Apple. This is when he was seasick as he was traveling the world. I was surprised at the slight effect my gastric juices had made upon it. The shrimps I had eaten seemed whole enough to start swimming as soon as they would strike the ocean. That's poetry (laughs) right there. You sometimes, I don't know that you've ever said this explicitly, but I never bring poetry to the show. I don't ever bring high literature and concept. But this, this is, this is art. In my notes for this chapter, before um, we decided to do this book for a season, um, I, I marked that passage, noting my pleasure. <laughs> An international church. Uh, chapter yes. 14 of David Omoke and the Rise of Modern Mormonism, our textbook for this season. And um, it's a great chapter. Um, not a lot of controversy and you know political angst this time around i think just wait till i get going oh i'm excited okay good (laughs) there's some there's definitely some but it was kind of an enjoyable uh just um travel log it kind of felt to me 
Yeah, especially at the beginning where we get to see him as a young apostle traveling the world. Right. He was the first general authority to circumnavigate the globe. David O'McKay. Yes. Um, uh, they, he went to Japan and then to China. He went to South Africa and he went up through Europe and he came back to the States in the 20s, I think it was. Yes. In the 20s. And it took like a couple of years, right? It took a while. Yeah. I mean, these are the good old days. And yeah. he was taking his time. He wasn't trying to set a land speed record. He was trying to get to know the people. Um, that was the thing that really struck me. Yeah, that, that I really was his like point. Uh, a thing he said about um, about Japan. In a, in a letter to one of his kids, he said, in Japan, everything is done backwards. Literally, you have to stand on your head in Japan to understand things, which sounds like he's about to get all xenophobic on us. But keep listening. Here you take off your hats, but there they take off their shoes. Wedding receptions are at the home of the man and not the bride. The bridegroom receives the wedding presents. That is the place for us men. The <laughs> Japanese carpenter saws up and planes back. If you want to criticize, first find out the other's point of view. Seeing their dinner, we felt hungry. Brother Simpson said, here's some lunch that we brought along with us. I reached across and took a sandwich in my hand. The first thing I noticed was a little girl on my right look over and try to keep back a snicker. She did too. Then I noticed that the bride was looking over at me. I began to wonder what was interesting to her. I then began to think and try to look at myself as others did. And this is what I saw. Her chopsticks were sanitary. She didn't touch one morsel with her hands. That was in her mind. Then I reached over, took the sandwich in my hands and held it in them until I had eaten it. As I passed her, I thought I could hear her say, although I could not understand it. Now that he has eaten his dinner, he has washed his hands. To me, eating food this way was all right, but to her it was not. Right from that moment on, I said, I am going to try to see things here in Japan from the Japanese standpoint, and it is wonderful how things changed. It's so awesome. It yes. is difficult to spend the time and try to put yourself in someone else's shoes, as it were. It is hard, because even though he wasn't uh, trying to set a land speed record, he was circumnavigating the globe, and you don't want to spend the rest of your life doing that. You need to get back and report. And he took that knowledge and he used it for the next, you know, 40 years or 50 years that he was present, you know, in the general authorities. Yes. Yeah. You can see the influence of this for the rest of his life. I would agree with that. The chapter has a great summary paragraph that I thought I'd just jump right to. And oh. um, the reason okay. why this would be useful is because... Um, what we, when we read these chapters, we try to liken the scriptures unto ourselves, as it were, right? Yeah. I'm quoting the Book of Mormon somewhere. Shouldn't you know where this scripture is? Liken ourselves, liken the scripture. Don't, don't you teach uh, Yeah, somewhere? that's Second Nephi 19, maybe <sighs> verse 27. Very nice. But it's, I'll check you out. Or no, not, did I say Second Nephi? It's First Nephi chapter 19, excuse me. There you go. So liken the book unto ourselves we're going to try to figure out how we can apply what he's saying to ourselves we're going to try to look for parallels okay so it talks about how the internationalization of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints was david omake's crowning achievement right and it says a combination of factors this is on page 372 a combination of factors including essentially abandoning the doctrine of gathering the construction of temples and chapels, reversing the church's negative public image and training local leaders, all worked together to affect a maturation of the international church 
128 years after the founding of the church, the first stake outside North America was formed in New Zealand. For those that don't know, a stake is our one of our fundamental units of membership in the church. You have a ward and you have a stake. A year later, England saw the formation of the first dirt stake in Europe. And in 1966, the first South American stake was organized in Brazil. Between 1958 and McKay's death in 1970, 34 LDS stakes began operations outside North America. Now, I'm not good at math, but my understanding is um, 34 over zero is an increase of infinity percent. Oh, I think you're right. That's why everybody's a Mormon. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) That's just math, Eric. Math. (laughs) With that kind of growth, like it's inevitable. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So anyway, so these are the things that he did. He abandoned the doctrine of gathering. Okay. He started constructing temples and chapels, reversed the church's negative public image, and trained local leaders. And those things together changed the church and helped it become international. It also talks about how he also how he started a translation department. Yes. Or at least was part of that organization. I mean, there were some things translated already, but that was a big deal, getting more and more translated. Yes, translations is a big part of any story. So um, two Thursdays ago in seminary, I talked about this chapter, actually, Ah. um, because I'm doing a thing on Thursdays where we talk about the history of the church somewhere other than the United States. And uh, that particular week we were talking about Korea, which is maybe not particularly relevant to David O. McKay, but as an introduction to how the church got going in Korea, I thought it would be useful to talk about David O. McKay's journeys and how it changed the way he thought um, an international church could look. And in 1953, we may, we may have gotten to the story later, but I'm going to jump in real quick. Uh, Senator Arthur Watkins, who's Mormon guy from Utah, uh, is going to Europe to do some diplomatic stuff. And he calls up David O. McKay and says, hey, uh, do you want me to see about getting more, make, making it easier for Mormons to emigrate to the United States uh, from Europe? And David O. McKay said no. David O. McKay had decided that from now on, that for the last 40 years, they've been hinting that people should stay in their lands, but now they're really going to mean it, like stay where you are and build the church there. Uh, this is just his third year or second year as president. I'm not sure of the date exactly. Um, immediately, and this is the same time that the church is officially opening up in Korea too. The Korean war is coming to an end and they're going to start teaching the gospel. Um, David O. McKay's, even, even in ways that aren't, uh, like, I don't have any evidence that he said we're officially changing this, but there's so many little details. Like you start seeing the church opening up in other places like Korea, you see, we're not going to push for, uh, special immigration policies to let Latter-day Saints come to the United States. Um, all the little things that have been beginning before his term as church president now become very official. We are going to leave people where they are, um, which is good for two reasons. A, it helps build the church. And also like having all these excellent human beings who've joined the church, leave a country makes those countries not like us. That's um, right. Church's bad image. Like you join this church and then you disappear and you're never heard from again was not great for the church's image. I mean, it's worth stating that for the first hundred years of the church's existence, we had this Zionism 
um, come to immigrate to the U.S. to the Great Britain uh, doctrine, essentially, right? Yeah. Yeah, this is what you're referring to, this abandonment of this doctrine of gathering, right? Right. And it was, it started out as a practical thing. Um, when the, uh, when because of polygamy, the United States government got involved in the church's financial affairs, one of the things they did was they dissolved the Perpetual Immigration Fund. Oh, which who's meant they? There was, right, which meant there was no, the money that was helping no, no, no. people who, come who, to Utah. Who dissolved, what is it and who dissolved it? Oh, so great. So the Perpetual Immigration Fund was a nice little thing that the church set up where you would borrow money from this in order to move to the United States. And when you got to the United States, you would help pay back that money so other people could borrow and come to America. But the United States government dissolved it because they didn't like polygamy and took all that money away. And on top of that, uh, in part because of the difficulties with the U.S. government, the economy in Utah was not looking so hot. And so a lot of people were coming and unless they already knew someone, they were having a hard time getting involved in the economy, um, even though they were faithful members of the church. And it resulted in a lot of people leaving the church and hurt feelings and just a lot of just a lot of ugliness. And so um, unofficially, they had already started pushing back on the doctrine of come to Utah, come to Utah. And uh, David O. McKay just really, I mean, again, this is 40 years later. No, more than that. <laughs> Let me do my math again. Uh, 60 years later, it's 60 years later, but he's really putting an end to it in a very official way. Stay where you are. Build the church there. That's what we want to do. Sort of like in the 90s when uh, I remember, uh, when was this exactly? Was President Hinckley the president then? I think it might have been before his tenure, but I remember hearing in general conference, we are not building any more BYUs. Go to school where you live and build the church there. Mm -hmm. I remember hearing that. That's excellent. So uh, international church, really, this was a big factor. It's really hard to overstate this. Um, the church probably, I mean, the authors of this book speculate that the church probably wouldn't have survived without its immigrants in the 1850s and 60s, right? The sure. Men... I mean, there was a point where there were more Latter-day Saints in Great Britain than there were in the United States. So yeah. all those people and all the Scandinavians coming over it would be a very different church. Right. They say that it either wouldn't have been as successful or worked at all to um, call it to essentially, I was going to use the word colonize and it's maybe not it's the wrong colonization. word to use. Might as well. <laughs> uh, the, it's the, not the, the wrong word. The Utah, <laughs> the Utah area. Right. Hey, speaking of ugly words. Yeah. Um, can I jump in real quick and do our, our pitch for other, other podcasts in the dialogue podcast network? Yeah, please do. So also a couple weeks ago, um, our friend David, who uh, guest is so far our only guest, as our, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken, he was on our Good Place episode, uh, a very good episode, but sadly, like recording quality is not the best on that one, but it's a good episode. And uh, David joined us for that. And he is teaching Elders Quorum in our ward right now. And he's a very smart guy and a very interesting person who brings a really great perspective. And he shared with us an uh a talk that had been given by one of our fellow podcasters, uh, none other than James Jones of Beyond the Block. Um, David said it, it was from the Black Legacy Conference. And from the talk, you, you can see that it came out the same weekend the Black Panther premiered. Um, David says it's probably his favorite church talk ever. And then he pitched the podcast. And I also would like to pitch the podcast. And one thing that uh, James does is he does get into some of these things like like we don't like the word colonization because it has a lot of terrible um, 
connotations. But the thing is, those connotations are legitimate and we shouldn't ignore them. And um, James is brave and, and he's jumping in and talking right about that stuff. And as long as I'm talking, we have a new podcast too called The Foyer starring uh, Patrick Mason, who's actually, he has a new book that came out in December called The Restoration that's really relevant to the stuff we're talking about today. Meanwhile, back in 1950, Aaron. Oh, you weren't ready for that. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, <laughs> oh, but it was excellent. Thank you for sharing. Um, oh, yeah. And that's right. I look forward to looking into those. Um, colonization. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know that that's our, really our subject here. No, it's not. But I mean, it's not. But and the theme, wow, it's a really, it, this is how we could get awkward and political if we want to. Um, I don't particularly want to, to be honest. Mm -hmm. It is a reasonable thing to say that missionary work is like colonization. Um, and I think that's actually a really useful lens to see missionary work through, but I don't ultimately think it's the most important way to see missionary work. And so I'll leave that conversation for someone else. Well, let's talk about here. Let's move on to, to the next point in this um, internationalization, right? Okay. Because um, I agree with you that this um, gathering to Utah, while it was vital for the early church, it really was, right? Um, in order for the church to take root and to succeed as an entity, we had to have lots of people gather, right? But one yes. of the reasons that was also true is because of the ordinances and covenants of the temple, right? There was only the one place where you could do that. That was Salt Lake City. Right. And so even starting in 1890, where they said, you don't really need to join Zion. If you want to go to the temple, and if you have joined this church because you believe this church has important truths you can't get anywhere else, then you do want to go to the temple. Then you have to come to Zion, come to Zion. And that because that's where the temples are they they except for hawaii they run in a line from cardston down to mesa and there are no other temples and once you get there you know it probably took all your money to get there so turning around and going back is maybe not the most practical option i remember as a kid in the 80s reading stories in the church magazines and hearing people talk about the saints from these from these far off places that saved for a decade and made a trip yeah. to the temple and lived in the temple essentially for a week, maybe two weeks if they were lucky, and then went home, went home essentially never to see it again. Right. And completely it, broke, possibly poorer than they'd ever been in their life sometimes. Yeah. And so the first inch, the, I don't know if it was the first, but David O'McKay started making prophecy, prophecies, promises, which turned out to be prophecies pretty early on in his presidency to places like New Zealand that someday they'll, you'll just have a temple here and you won't have to make that kind of a, of a sacrifice and that kind of a trip. It's, it reminds me a lot about a pilgrimage to Mecca. Do you know much about, a, about um, traveling to Mecca? Well, I know more than nothing, but I would hesitate to call myself anything approximating an expert. But I suppose, let me guess which points you are going to be making. Mm -hmm. um, Mecca is... Oh, shoot. What's it called? Is it called one of the pillars of Islam? Anyway, it's one of the important things you have to do in your life. Um, and some of them are things you do daily, like, um, you know, praying and so forth. Um, and some of them are things you only have to do once. And going to Mecca is one of them. And, you know, that was. That's a challenge because Mecca is one location. Okay, and, for Muslims, the Hajj 
is the fifth and final pillar of Islam. It occurs in the month of Dhul, um, Hijah, which is the 12th month of the Islamic lunar calendar. It is a journey that every sane adult Muslim must partake at least once in their lives if they can afford it and are physically able. I have to say the chapter in Malcolm X's autobiography where he goes to Mecca is, is actually, it's, it's very moving. Um, it's a really beautiful description of like how religious experience can, can affect a person. Oh, and that's first... kind of, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that's my main, my main, besides the fact that I have taught a, a number of Muslim kids and we've, we've talked about some of this stuff, like my main interaction with Mecca is through Malcolm X. Hmm. What is, uh, how was your first trip to the temple? Um, it was pretty good. I don't have any, my parents prepared me for it really well, I think. And I don't have a lot of really specific memories. Um, but overall, it was a positive experience. I do remember feeling powerfully the spirit on my on my first visit. I don't know how prepared I was. Um, I'm, obviously, my parents told me about it. But um, it was so fascinating, the video and the dialogue and, and everything. It was, it's, so, okay, so we got all this construction happening. We're going to build temples. We're going to establish Zion um, in the places where people live. Reversing the church's negative public image. As you said before about how people would just move away, that was one thing. But another one was, of course, polygamy was well known to the people outside of the church and in other countries. We talked about, um, of course, the... Uh, in, the, in Africa, the reception of certain letters regarding the, um, the priesthood ban on blacks holding the priesthood and how, what a negative that effect that had. So how did President McKay help reverse the church's public image? Well, I mean, a, a few things were pretty practical, um, like the classic send the Mormon Tabernacle Choir out <laughs> to do our goodwill for them. Um, that's been a classic been used many times in many places of the world but i think in my opinion the most important thing was just his attitude from the fact that when he was just a lowly low-level apostle visiting um, various parts of the world that he was talking about temples someday when that was so far from the lived reality just shows that he had a lot of vision for what this could be um, and i i just believe that when he took over the role of president of the church that um, when people talk about David O. McKay, and there aren't as many people who can do that as there used to be, but they talk about how he, his, his very presence and his charisma let people believe that they were seen by a prophet of God. And I think that that was maybe the most important thing he did is no matter where he went or who he was talking to, people believed that the church was for them and the church was for this place and the church was coming and it was going to take care of them. Um, in another chapter, it talks in, in the buildings chapter, it talks about some of the stuff they did also, like just building buildings was a really big part of, of establishing the church and making it seem serious and important and worth doing. And um, he, was, he was very interested in this. He put a lot of effort and thought into choosing the right people to be mission presidents and to be in charge of building programs. And he believed in the international church and people felt that. People loved him. 
people did. Training local leaders. I was a missionary in Brazil and it was, it was awesome. Um, I served in a couple different interesting places. I served in a well-established ward in which I was really an auxiliary to everything else that was going on. Right. Um, I, I know I, I would, I wouldn't surprise me if some missionaries nowadays often feel like auxiliaries in the wards that they're serving in. Well, and I, w I wish that wasn't the case. And so I, you know, I'm involved in the, in the mission program here in the local area. And I, I want the missionaries to feel involved in local efforts, but I do feel like sometimes they're, they're just there. And that's kind of how I felt in this ward. And it wasn't a bad thing. I was just, I, the war was, the ward was, had been there for a while. They knew what I was there for and they helped me. Right. But, you know, I didn't really, I didn't have to play the piano very much, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And then I got transferred later in my mission. One of my favorite areas that I served in um, was a little town and there weren't very many active members there. And there weren't a lot of local leaders as well who could fill the actual positions of the church. Yeah, you know, elders, quorum president and branch president and all the different positions, Relief Society president. So I was a much more central role of that ward, right? And of course, but I never opened an area while I was on my mission. I never got off a bus in a town where there were zero Mormons and set up the church from scratch, which a lot of people did. And at the beginning of his presidency, there were a lot of missionaries out there just running branches. You know, they were the people that, you know, organized the meetings. They were the, essentially the bishop, the eldest corn president, the Relief society president. They were all one person and they were, you know, young kids. So one of the things they did was help train local leaders so that the responsibility shifted from these kids onto the local leadership. President McKay relates a story where he really felt stung by a reporter who asked him, you have this, I'm not going to quote it directly. I'm not going to look it up, but it, it's in this chapter. And he says, you have this um, mission here in, the, here in Great Britain, but there's not a British person in charge. Is there no one here that could do that? Right. And President McKay had some answer, but he felt like really stung by it. And so one of the things that the church does is try to train up local people to do the thing and become less dependent on this missionary program in, in different areas. I think that's great. It does take time. There are extraordinary people who are, who are, you know, able to um, run the church, but I don't know if your experience, you, you have, this is totally anecdotal, both my experiences and your experiences, but your experience will be different than mine. But it seemed like um, serving my mission in Korea that um, although the missionary work was not going great in Korea, it was functional. And a big part of what made it work was the fact that um, the local leadership was second generation members of the church. And having grown up in the church, uh, seemed to give the church a lot of stability in terms of um, having local leadership. 
I'm really interested if there's studies on this. I don't know if there are. If anybody knows of any, please, please point me to them. But I suspect that a lot of that stability comes from the second generation. Yeah, a lot of stuff like that does make sense. I mean, I don't know either, but it's interesting to think about. How, how successful do you think we are at being an international church? You know, I was reading something recently and I mentioned it in a previous show. So maybe it's in one of the previous show's notes. And, I, and someone was drawing a distinction between being an international church and being a global church and said that we had not made the leap to being truly global. Like we were international, we were in many nations and so forth, but we weren't global in the sense that the church had, was seen as native to every land it was in. It still felt like an American church, no matter where you go. And like President McKay, I felt a bit stung by that, but I wouldn't feel stung if it didn't feel kind of true. So it's really hard for me as a United Statesian <laughs> to separate my culture from the culture of the church, right? Um, I don't, it's hard for me to know, what, know where my culture ends and the church culture begins. So I don't know. I don't sure. know that I can really answer the question. I'm not really qualified for it. Except that I've been to Brazil and I spent two years there and it is different. And I got to take some of that back. Yeah, I, um, I agree with you. And I, I don't know if it's possible to really make that distinction from my own experience. And I, I suspect, um, so speaking of Korea, and I don't know how this is in Brazil, and I don't know what it's like in Korea right now, but when I was in Korea, this is 25 years ago, the church was trying to have every other mission president in each of the missions be a native Korean. Um, and then every other one would be an American or Canadian usually. And the goal was to have them all be um, Koreans, but there just wasn't enough homegrown talent at that point. Um, I know it's more frequent than every other one now, but I don't know if they've reached a point where every mission president is Korean. But, you know, if you just think about it as organizational structure, uh, you need to have all these bishops in order to have to choose from them to make stake presidents, right? And all those local leaders become area 70s and mission presidents. And from those groups, we get um, our 70s and we get our apostles and eventually all the way to the tippy top. Now we do have a Brazilian apostle now, but the apostleship as a whole, there's um, one, I don't know, does, does uh, Diedrich Fuchtdorf identify as German American or Czech American? But I'm pretty sure he's an American citizen now. So we have him and we have um, Elder Suarez who's Brazilian and everybody else is American. Um, Elder Gong is a, is a person of color, but he's definitely, I mean, you, he's an American for sure. And um, so at the very top level, I, it, it sort of looks more international than global. And I'm sure, and I think that's going to change, but um, that's still, that's still like, if, if the telling point is like the very top leadership, are they from all over the world? And that's how we define that the whole world is equally Latter-day Saint at this point, then that, that test we haven't passed yet. 
I think it's better as you go lower down into the forms of the oh, it city. Is. Yeah, the, the minor leagues are filled with uh, much more international talent. I think it just takes time to percolate up myself. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, I that's exactly what I'm saying. Like that it's still taking time, which is fine. Like I'm not saying it shouldn't, but um, I'm I'm not really expressing an opinion on that at all. Just as a as a way of thinking about this. Does it matter? Well, international, international versus global. I, again, these are not my terms. They're just terms that I'm simplifying based on some article I read a month ago. But I think it does matter. I think it does. And I think it's hard for us to know how it does. Um, I think as American Latter-day Saints, deep down inside, we might be a little threatened by the idea of, say, a... Um, Ghanaian president of the church who will think about things a little bit differently than you or I with our uh, connections that pass through Utah. Um, But I do think that the body of Christ um, really does require treating every part of the body as equally important. Um, And getting rid of all, getting rid of our American centrism, I think is part of that. And it's going to be, it's going to take a long time. And it doesn't mean the church isn't true before is more or less true before or after that. But in terms of being a true home for all the peoples of the world, I I think it does matter. In the section on public image, well, let me me just find the quote. Um, Well, can I make an excuse for us while you're looking? Yes. So I don't remember the exact numbers, but before John Paul II, who was Polish, and the latest Benedict, who was... German or Austrian, and uh, Pope Francis, who was Argentinian, the vast majority of popes for a very long time had been Italian. So it's not like it's not like this is a unique problem to a church that's just a couple hundred years old. Like even the Catholics have to deal with this. Uh, but I do think, and it is challenging. And you can see you can see in the Catholic Church the schism between the so-called Northern Church and the so-called Southern Church, where the the Catholics in Africa and South America are much more conservative than the Catholics from Europe and, the, and North America. And um, there are these debates between them. And, but I, I do believe as, as a pluralist, as, which is my, my inheritance as an American, that having a lot of different voices at the table makes things better. More perspectives is good for us. The quote I was looking for was, um, it talks about in the chapter, how they received feedback from international audiences about how uncomfortable they were when everything was about Utah in the conference talks. I still feel that way. Like I hear a metaphor. I'm like, this metaphor is so Utah or so America. Like how do they translate this? So it makes sense to a member of the church in Mongolia. Like I have no idea. Like this, (laughs) and I wouldn't mind so much if, um, if there was the occasional Mongolian metaphor that I wasn't sure I understood. Yeah. But the, that awkwardness only seems to pass in one direction. So I think that, I think that we're trying. I think oh, that, I think so too. I think it's, there's some good progress happening. It's the sort of thing that takes decades, possibly centuries. And we owe David O. McKay a lot of thanks for really getting us going on this journey in a way that we hadn't really begun before his time. Uh, imagine there's no 
countries. Is that a phrase from some song? I think you're imagining a John Lennon song. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> I'm really, I'm kind in some ways I'm kind of a, a poor American, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not one of these super patriotic folks. I mean, I love where I'm at, but I also really like traveling. I happen to be in a job where, well, before the, before, in the before times, <laughs> I got to travel quite a bit. And that was to conduct research at these various institutions. And I loved it. And I love, and I really, I really miss it. So I really think that, that um, being able to meet and see other people is super important. It's also really expensive though. Yeah. <laughs> well, fortunately the church has billions of dollars socked away. <laughs> Send us all out on missions. Um, well, how are we, do- how are we doing? S- I got, I'm starting to ramble a bit. Well, well I have, I have a, I have a, uh, something to say in response to you, but I, I think we're getting close to being able to wrap it up. Okay. Um, so I, I want to push back on your definition of patriotism as some kind of national chauvinism. National. That, that was the word I was looking for. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that way. And I don't think our religion has to be nationally chauvinistic either. I think what we need to do is um, essentially what Christ always asks us to do. He asks us to love our neighbors as ourselves. He asks us to see other people as fully children of God, just as we try to see ourselves. And we need to do that, not just with individuals, but with cultures and backgrounds and histories. And that is the great challenge. Like the the challenge of the international church is at its root, a very Christian challenge. The challenge to really truly believe that someone from Mozambique or someone from, the Seashell Islands or someone from Japan or someone from Hong Kong or someone from Morocco or wherever this person is with their very different background and their very different set of cultural little in-jokes that that person is just as much a child of God and just as much worthy of the salvation of Jesus Christ as everyone else. That's what David O. McKay learned when he traveled around the world. And it's what each of us are asked to do when we're asked to sustain Elder Suarez as the first Brazilian member of the 12. And it's what we're going to be asked to do more and more and more as the church gets more colorful and diverse, both geographically, ethnically, in every way you can imagine. And it's my testimony that that is what Jesus wants us to do. I do really like Berkeley, though. I do like Berkeley. I'm not, I don't want to leave. (laughs) Maybe temporarily send me on one of those trips. (laughs) <laughs> President Nelson, I will be your ambassador for a few weeks, but uh, I like my hometown. Next week, we're going to do chapter eight, the education system. Why are you interested in this chapter? So I am a BYU graduate. I have very, I, well, I'm sure we can talk about my ambivalence about BYU uh, next, next time we meet, but I also really love BYU um, for all my mixed feelings about it. But I will say that this chapter and the stories about Ernest Wilkinson are going to make you like, um, they're not all great stories. There's some really interesting stories. Like it's a fascinating chapter. One of my favorite ones in the book, but some of them are like, Ur. it's not, not quite Ezra Taft Benson, Ur, but a little bit. Ur. <laughs> all right. I love it. Okay. We'll see you then. See you then.